Hezbollah, and he got killed along with his grandson. The chaotic struggle to evacuate Gaza City, as Israeli officials indicate an imminent invasion. For Saturday, October 14th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. We'll hear the latest on the war from our correspondents and hosts in Israel. We'll also take you behind the scenes in the NHL as we shadow a rookie goalie through his first day on the job. That thud is the sound of a rubber hockey puck uh, that's been shot at Gibson that he is blocking with his body. And we'll hear about the ring of fire eclipse that cut a swath across the western U.S. today. To see the colors change as the moon moved in front of the sun and the landscape dimmed and dimmed and dimmed. First, the news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Hundreds of thousands of Gaza residents are struggling to flee from areas targeted by the Israeli military ahead of an expected land offensive. This after Israel imposed a complete siege on Gaza, meaning no people, supplies or food are allowed to come in or out. NPR's Ayo Batrawi says hospitals are running out of fuel for generators, but that many medical staff are staying put. I also heard from a doctor, Hossam Abu Safia. He says in his hospital in northern Gaza, doctors don't have time to evacuate. There are people on life support. They're busy triaging a steady stream of wounded and dead from continuous Israeli airstrikes. And the Palestinian Ministry of Health says a third of those killed in Palestinian territories in Gaza are children. And Pirazaya Batrawi. Meanwhile, among those trying to leave are U.S. citizens who were hoping to evacuate today. And Pierce Nina Kravinsky has more. Massachusetts resident Abud Okal and his family waited at the Rafah border crossing for hours Saturday, hoping Egyptian authorities would open the gate to let them out. He and other U.S. citizens trapped in Gaza were told by the U.S. State Department that the gate may open between noon and 5 p.m. local time. That window has passed and the crossing remains closed. It's just extremely frustrating. Okal, his wife, and their one-year-old baby will spend another night in Gaza. U.S. officials have been negotiating with Israel and Egypt to open the border for Americans. Nina Kravinsky, NPR News, Jerusalem. And Israel is vowing to find every Hamas militant who took part in last week's surprise attack in southern Israel. NPR's Peter Canyon reports officials say 279 Israeli soldiers were confirmed killed. 126 people are being held in captivity. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, the IDF spokesperson, says the military still urges people in the northern Gaza Strip to move south. He says Hamas is trying to prevent that movement as Israel prepares for what Hagari calls an expanded attack on Gaza. He also warned that anyone trying to cross into Israel from Lebanon will be arrested or killed. Separately, a veteran hardline nationalist, Avigdor Lieberman, said he would join Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's emergency government. The Russian-born politician earlier had refused to join Netanyahu's coalition. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. The White House says President Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today. Biden updated Netanyahu on U.S. support for Israel and discussed coordination to provide humanitarian aid to civilians to make sure they have access to water, food, and medical care. Biden also affirmed his support for all efforts to protect civilians. Meanwhile, the president also spoke to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, offering support for Abbas's efforts to get humanitarian aid to Gaza. And in France, police say the Louvre and Versailles Palace were evacuated today and searched after bomb threats. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. A group of more than 200 people at UMass Amherst have sent a letter to the school's chancellor to condemn a statement by the Graduate Student Union about the war in Israel. The Graduate Employee Organization blamed the violence on Israeli settlers. It did not address the killing or kidnapping of Israelis by Hamas. Heather Kamov is a union member. She says she learned of the statement after it was posted. It's immoral. How can anybody take a stance that's in favor of the murder of innocent lives of babies? The union did not respond to a request for comment. Chancellor Javier Reyes says he hopes those who hold opposing views can work toward understanding rather than division. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is standing with the local Jewish community as the war between Israel and Hamas intensifies. Mayor Wu spoke at a Shabbat service at Temple Israel in Boston. The city of Boston stands with you, grieves with you, and will take every action to ensure that our communities here are safe. That's Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. Two people died following a wrong-way crash on Interstate 95 North in Lexington shortly before 1.30 this morning. Both drivers were pronounced dead at the scene. State police say 95 North at 4 and 25 was closed for several hours. Massachusetts House Speaker Ron Mariano plans to bring a gun reform measure to the House next week. WCVB is reporting that Mariano expects the measure to pass Wednesday. The bill addresses firearms-related issues issues, including the tracking of ghost guns, the licensing process, and the restrictions on the presence of firearms in public spaces. The bill has faced opposition from the police chief's union and some gun rights advocates. Bruins host the Predators at the Garden tonight. Revolution are on the road against Nashville tonight. 59 degrees at 506. Cloudy skies tonight, a low in the upper 40s. Partly sunny tomorrow, low 60s. Partly sunny on Monday, a slight chance of showers, low 60s. And for Tuesday, cloudy, a chance of showers, upper 50s. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. It's been a week since Hamas militants breached several towns in southern Israel, killing at least 1,300 people and taking some 150 people hostage. Ever since, Israel has been unleashing an intense military operation in Gaza, where Hamas holds control. Israeli forces have conducted thousands of airstrikes and imposed a full siege on Gaza, barring food, fuel, water, and electricity from entering. And now Israel is apparently preparing a ground invasion. In Gaza already, more than 2,200 people have been killed, thousands wounded, and the hospitals are on the brink of collapse. Compounding this humanitarian crisis was a warning yesterday by the Israeli military to civilians, leave the north and head south. For more on all of this, we are joined by Morning Edition host Leila Fadel, who's in Jerusalem. And Leila, it's morning for you, so I'll say good morning. Good morning. Well, it's not really morning. Well, almost. <laughs> let's, let's start with this mass evacuation. What are you hearing? 
So like you said, Scott, the Israeli military dropped flyers throughout the north yesterday telling people to leave. So a lot of people scrambled to get out with what they could take. We're talking about 1.1 million people ordered to cross an active war zone. And even those who heeded the warning of the Israeli military and used safe routes didn't all stay safe. A convoy of people fleeing was struck and dozens of people were killed, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. I also spoke to a man, Habadaj Rami, who said his cousin fled and then was killed in the home where he evacuated to. What happened? Well, first, his cousin, Aed, got this call from the Israeli army. So what you're hearing there is the person from the Israeli army saying in Arabic, you've got to go south for your safety. Tell your neighbors, take your families, go. He asks about a specific town, Dar um, and the man on the phone says, yeah, that's safe, you can go there. And so he does. Um, and then when he gets there, his cousin, Abid Ajrami, tells me what happened. Uh, last night, a little villa was bombed, and he got killed along with his grandson. And um, several people were injured, including his wife. And I just got a report that nine of his family were killed. So, yeah, I mean... Where can people, I mean, this is somebody who tries to flee, is killed. Where can people go to find safety at this moment? I mean, Palestinians say in Gaza there's nowhere safe. In fact, some are just not leaving the north at all because they say there's no guarantee that the south will be safer. They also say they don't want to leave with no guarantee they can return to their land. And, Scott, I should remind you, Palestinian civilians in Gaza are trapped inside. They cannot get out. The enclave is not like a regular country. It doesn't control its airspace, its borders, or its sea. And right now the borders are sealed by Egypt and Israel, and there's, of course, no airport. The U.N. Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of internally displaced people, Paula Gaviria Batankor, condemned Israel or Israel's order for people to leave the north in the strong, the south in the strongest terms. She said, "Forcible population transfers constitute a crime against humanity." And just to correct myself, to leave the north. Okay. And then, lastly, what about the the 400 to 600 Americans trapped there? Yeah, I've been tracking one American family. The State Department emailed saying there might be an opportunity for Americans to leave through the Rafah crossing in Gaza and into Egypt today. Abu Dokeil, who was in Massachusetts, got there at 10.30 this morning with his wife and one-and-a-half-year-old, waited for hours, sent us this voice memo at 4.27 p.m. after he'd called the State Department and the U.S. embassies in Cairo and Jerusalem. It doesn't seem like we get actual uh, information on, on what to do next, so... Um I don't know how we're going to be able to fall asleep tonight. The crossing never opened, and they were unable to get out. That is NPR's Layla Fadel reporting from Jerusalem. Thanks so much for your reporting, Layla. Thank you, Scott. As Israel prepares for its expected invasion of the Gaza Strip, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony, Antony Blinken has had a series of meetings with leaders in the region in a diplomatic effort to contain the conflict. And Pierre's Michelle Kellerman has been traveling with Blinken and joins us now from Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Hey, Michelle. Hi, Scott. What has been this? Who's the secretary been talking to? Well, a lot of people. I mean, yeah. he's been crisscrossing this region. This is the fifth Arab state that he's visited on a trip that began Thursday in Israel. And he just has a lot on his plate. He's trying to get countries in the region to pressure Hamas to free Israeli hostages, including some Americans. He wants uh, countries to send messages to others in the region, Hezbollah and Iran in particular, to stay out of this conflict. 
And then there are Palestinian Americans, as we just heard, trapped in Gaza. He's been trying to get Egypt to open up that border crossing, the Rafah crossing, to let those Americans and other foreign nationals leave. I mean, we, we, we just heard that, that a lot of these crossings are not open. NPR has been hearing from Palestinian Americans who were told to go to that border. Has the State Department given any indication on why it wasn't open today? Not really. I mean, they thought they had a deal. They've been negotiating for days with the Egyptians, the Israelis, and with Qatar, which has kept communications um, with Hamas. But, you know, there are a lot of players and a lot of tricky diplomacy. And as you heard, a lot of people counting on some kind of solution soon. Egypt says that Foreigners will be able to get out as long as aid can get in. Uh, U.S. officials are hoping things can start moving soon. Uh, Blinken's actually going to Egypt tomorrow. So we frame this as Blinken trying to contain the conflict, but is he trying to head off an Israeli ground offensive? No. I mean, he says that Hamas has to be put out of business. Those were his words. He said that this is a time for moral clarity, given the atrocities that Hamas has carried out. Of course, he's hearing a lot of concern from Arab leaders about the rising um, Palestinian death toll, and many in the region are calling for a de-escalation. But the U.S. position is that Israel has to respond to an unprecedented attack by Hamas. Um, The U.S. says it's trying to arrange safe zones in Gaza, away from Gaza City. But most aid groups, and as you heard in Layla's reporting, um, you know, everyone says there's really nowhere safe to go in Gaza. I mean, Michelle, your reporting (laughs) over time has shown that the Secretary of State's job is is certainly never pretty straightforward or easy. But um, I'm just thinking of all the things Blinken's trying to weigh and do here. This sounds like a very tough, if not impossible, job at this current moment. Yeah, and it wasn't the trip that he had been expecting to take. I mean, the Biden administration's diplomatic focus before the Hamas attack was to promote normalization deals that started under the Trump administration. And they were really trying to get the Saudis and the Israelis to normalize ties. But, you know, all of that is going to have to wait now as this region is really on edge. That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman in Saudi Arabia. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The United States House of Representatives remains paralyzed. It still has no speaker, which means it can't vote on any legislation, including any additional military aid to Israel. Majority Leader Steve Scalise was briefly the party's speaker-designate this week until he realized he didn't have enough support to win a floor vote and withdrew. Now the party has tapped Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, but he doesn't seem to have enough votes either. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is covering all of this and joins me now. Hey, Sue. Hey, Scott. I miss any key details there? You know, I think that captures it, but a couple points. You know, Jordan won the nomination in a secret ballot, and that was after Republican Congressman Austin Scott of Georgia decided he'd challenge him. And Scott, with like an hour's notice, still got nearly a third of the Republican conference to support him. And his speaker message was basically, I don't actually want to be speaker. I just don't think Jim Jordan should go unchallenged. So Jordan then made the choice to go for a second ballot, and that was basically a referendum, asking his Mm -hmm. colleagues if they would vote for him on the floor. And 55 Republicans still voted no on a secret ballot. So Jordan wanted to be able to go to the floor fast, as fast as Friday, to lock it up. But those numbers were just so far away from the 217 he'll likely need on the floor. So he basically told members to go home, and they're going to regroup on Monday. So Jordan 
is far short of the votes, just like now former Speaker Kevin McCarthy was short on the votes and just like Steve Scalise was short on the votes. What is the path forward? Well, Jordan has a calculation to make about how far away he thinks he is and if he can close it on the floor. Jordan supporters say they think it'll be a lot harder to vote against him in public. He's popular with the base. He's endorsed by Donald Trump. Can he sort of rely on peer pressure to get the votes? But it's sort of hard to bully your way into the speaker's office. It's a consensus building job. And frankly, Jordan's reputation in Congress has been much more about derailing and opposing deals than bringing people together to get something done. So this paralysis, this lack of a speaker, at this point, is this a Congress problem or a Republican problem? It's largely a math problem. Right now, Republicans only have 221 votes. Narrow majorities are unwieldy. But it's also a rules problem. Remember, former Speaker Kevin McCarthy changed the rules to make it easier for one Republican to remove the speaker. At the same time, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi had exactly the same majority, and she was able to lock up the votes for Speaker and keep it together. So it's not really a both sides issue here. I I always note that the base of the Democratic Party at its core still wants to govern, supports government, and the base of the Republican Party is just generally more anti-establishment and, frankly, anti-government. Okay, so given all of this, has this opened up a world where if Republicans can't find a candidate and unite around a candidate, there is a possibility of at some point Democrats banding with a few moderate Republicans and electing a speaker with that coalition? Not a single Republican I talked to this week said that was possible, but Democrats are offering their hand. They're saying they would consider it if Republicans would do things like bring more bipartisan bills to the floor and essentially give Democrats more power. But doing that would make it look like Republicans handed over the governing wheel to Democrats and probably open up a lot of Republicans to primary challenges. So for now, no, Republicans are still going to need to find a way to elect a Republican speaker with Republican votes. That's NPR's Susan Davis covering the continuing quest to find a House speaker. Thanks, Sue. You're welcome. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting Fat Ham. The 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Now through October 29th, HuntingtonTheater.org. And Pingree School, a vibrant, all-gender, independent day school for grades 9 to 12 north of Boston. Open house on Saturday, October 21st at 11. Pingree.org. At WBUR, we occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required to win a prize. Employees of WBUR and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. WBUR supporters include the Edward M. Kennedy Institute, hosting corporate events in a replica U.S. Senate chamber and high-tech multi-use spaces. Visit emkinstitute.org events. And Greener U, a design-build firm that plans, engineers, and builds solutions for getting to carbon neutrality. GreenerU.com.
As Israeli troops prepare for an expected ground offensive and ordered hundreds of thousands of Gaza residents in the north to head south, President Biden spoke to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today, affirming U.S. support for Israel and also calling for the protection of civilians and to make sure they have food, water and medical care. Biden also spoke to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, offering support for Abbas's efforts to get humanitarian aid to Gaza. In France, the Louvre and the Versailles Palace were evacuated today after bomb threats. And there was a rare sight in the sky over the western Americas today as the annual solar eclipse created a ring of fire from South America up to the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. The top story we're following today, the war between Israel and Hamas. It's now been one week since Hamas militants staged a brutal ground attack that killed more than a thousand Israelis. Ever since, Israel has been pounding the Gaza Strip with airstrikes. Its chief military spokesperson said today a new phase of Israel's week-long attack on Hamas may be imminent. He said Israel's military is poised to, quote, attack Gaza City very broadly soon via air, ground and sea. And he urged people in northern Gaza to continue evacuating south. We caught up yesterday with someone who's already done that, Nur Harazin. She was a freelance journalist in Gaza. Right now I am with uh, my kids and husband in southern Gaza. And I had to leave my parents behind in central Gaza because they refused to leave the home. Um, it was a very hard decision for me, but I had to choose to stay with my children and I need to take care of them. She says for those who have fled, the future is full of uncertainty. People are shocked. People are trying to understand what is really happening in Gaza. Is, is, is this real? Will I come back? Will our homes be there? Will our homes be destroyed? What will happen? So many questions in my head and in other people's heads. So um, it's, it's, it's indescribable. It's, it's a new catastrophe. Harazin says the people of Gaza are already running out of water, electricity, fuel and food, and now they're bracing for an invasion. The situation is just going from bad to worse. And we're hoping, we're hoping that, um, I don't know, the Arab League, any Arab country, any other country will intervene and somehow, somehow come up with a truce agreement. We'll have much more on all of this later in the show. And you can find all of NPR's ongoing coverage at npr.org slash updates. A new NHL season is underway. Across the 32 teams in the league, there are 736 roster spots 
and millions of kids grow up wanting to one day earn one of them. Ahead of the season, All Things Considered went behind the scenes and on the ice to follow one rookie on the verge of achieving that dream. Hey Gabe, you're rolling. Can I just get you to say your name for me? Yep, Mitchell Gibson. Mitchell Gibson is 24 years old, and he's hoping to become one of the Washington Capitals goalies. Gibson was drafted in the fourth round back in 2018. In hockey, unlike the NFL and other sports, players are often drafted before they go to college. So he committed to the Capitals, but then headed to Harvard to play college hockey. And now, years later, he's a pro. Gibson first talked to us from his parents' house in suburban Philadelphia, just before he drove down to Virginia for the Caps rookie camp. You know, I have nothing to lose, right? I mean, they kind of, they probably already have, like, what's in their head as to where guys are going to go and where, the, you know, I'm slated kind of in their in their lineup. Sure, testing one, two, three. We are standing uh, in the bleachers looking at the Caps rookies practice. We got four goalies on the ice right now. They're all wearing red. Gibson came on and uh, immediately went over by the penalty box, and he was stretching out. He's talking to the coaches now. All the goalies are getting together. That thud is the sound of a rubber hockey puck uh, that's been shot at Gibson that he is blocking with his body. It's, uh, it's kind of a crazy position where your job is to put your body in front of hockey pucks that could be going at this level over 100 miles an hour. Gibson is a chatty guy. He skates over to compliment the shooter. I like your shot. What? I like your shot. Yeah? It's keeping me on my toes right now. After a few rounds, a coach pulls Gibson aside. He spotted an issue with Gibson's form. What's that? That flat leg gets away from you. Yeah, yeah. Most of, for the most part, really good job. At the end of the drill, I was. Yeah, yeah. You can feel back that there. back leg and shorts here. And then you can yep. During a break, Gibson skates over to the bench to grab a water bottle. And this time, he chats up a trainer. How are we doing? Chugged a coffee, so I'm buzzing. Before practice, Gibson had walked with us from the ice rink to a nearby coffee shop. Along the way, he told producer Gabriel Sanchez and me about how he got started and when he realized he had a shot at the NHL. When did you uh, start playing goalie? Seven. I started skating when I was five, seven when I, was, when I played, played goalie. My, I have an older brother and a younger brother. So my older brother, we had like an old, like unfinished basement in my old house with like cement walls. So he just needed someone to shoot at and just pinned me up against the wall with a, you know, like a pillow under my shirt yeah. and just started hammering away when I was when I was that age, so. Actually, I feel like I know a lot of goalies who were, who just like came down to the fact that they were the youngest kid and got stuck in goal. Yeah, yeah, basically. And just someone someone bullied them into doing it and it just ended up, don't regret it now. It's kind of a crazy like start to it. Mitchell Gibson progressed through youth hockey and one day around the time when he was a freshman in high school, he realized, whoa, there are scouts in the stands yeah checking me out. I, I was terrified, like, cause you, especially you go to those rinks and it's like youth rinks. So like you only see like a couple guys in the stands and like, you know exactly, they all have the jackets on. You know what I mean? It's like that typical scout kind of look. They all have notebook and they have the jackets on. And like, for me, I just wanted to get to college. Like that was really like, I thought like, okay, if I just get D1, then maybe I'll think about pro after, but like. After high school, Gibson spent a couple of years playing junior hockey, an ultra competitive youth setting where people trying to make it to the pros or college often go. From there, he was drafted by the Capitals, then headed to Harvard. And all along, it's been a lot of pressure. I don't know. I think, I think I'm, think i you know, as a goalie, you always just try to be the coolest guy on the ice, right? Like, you don't want to show your nerves or, you know, show that you're, you're, you're intimidated out there, which 
I feel like I'm never really too too scared of the moment. I kind of like it and enjoy it. I, I stay pretty stern when I'm in net. Like I try not to show too much emotion. So that's one of the things I try to focus on. Gibson spent all summer working out and preparing for the faster speeds and stronger players and longer seasons he'll face in the pros. But he's most focused on the mental game, trying to keep that cool. Even when he's now playing with the best of the best and facing the toughest pressure of his young career. I think for me, it's all between the years. Like a lot of like mental battles kind of go on when you turn pro, you know, um, other guys coming in, you know, you're, you're competing with other goalies now. The right mental approach is key for every athlete. It's especially key for a position like goalie. Dwell too much on the mistake you made and the goal you let in, you lose your confidence. More mistakes follow. But get too proud of that amazing glove save, and maybe you get too comfortable, too unfocused, and suddenly you're scored on twice. Gibson is big on meditation. I do it myself. So I, I read a book, I forget, I, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by um, Shunru Suzuki. I read it over COVID, and then I got into meditation over COVID, and that opened up a whole new world for me. He's made it a daily practice now and says it helps on the ice. It is what it is. You can't really, you can't control what happened literally two seconds ago. You know, the horn goes off, all that stuff. But it's almost, I... It's, it's weird. You would think it'd be the opposite where I have to take time and take a break and figure out what happened and, and kind of move on from there. But for me, it's actually been, you know, just keep moving forward because the more I dwell on that, the more it's going to affect the next thing. So It's harder in this setting, though. In college, everyone was in it together. Teammates lived in the dorms together. They went to class together. They looked out for each other. In the pros, it could be more cutthroat. There are way more goalies at Capitals camp than there are roster spots. You don't really have to say it. I mean, we're at this point now where... I'm trying to take another guy's paycheck from him, right? So um, I think in college, there was maybe a little bit more of that camaraderie, but- And um, there's another huge mental hurdle. We see it play out as we walk back to the rink so Gibson can get ready for practice. He's telling me about when the Capitals drafted him, when suddenly our conversation trails off. It's just funny how it worked out. I had a good interview with them, so. Gibson and I are both kind of laughing nervously there because suddenly, Alex Ovechkin has come around the corner and is watching our interview from just a few feet away as he waits for the elevator. Ovechkin, a Stanley Cup winner, the captain of the team, and the player on pace to pass the great one, Wayne Gretzky, to become the league's number one goal scorer of all time. That's cool. That intimidated me. Did that intimidate you just now? Uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what he was doing down here. The encounter reminds Gibson of a moment last spring when he got called up to the Capitals for a one-day emergency stint as their backup goalie. He had just finished his final season as Harvard's goalie, which meant he was free to finally formally sign with the Capitals, who had drafted him five years earlier. The team's regular backup goalie was sick, and the Capitals told Gibson to be on standby. They called me and said, hey, just so you know, they're on the road, but if in case anything happens with the Caps goalies this week, they had like three games that week, if I remember. If anything happens this week, you're going to be the, the guy on the bench, basically. Gibson slept with his ringer on, though he didn't really expect the phone to ring. But it did. So Gibson rushed from his college dorm in Cambridge all the way to the Capitals Arena in Washington, D.C. He sat in the locker room, looking around and not quite believing what was going on. You know, I'm looking over and I'm like, I'm like, holy Ovi's my teammate now for a game. Like, the hell is as like I was definitely scared. And I, Gibson I didn't get into the game, but he was break. on the ice for warmups. When he skated into goal to get some practice, the rest of the team cleared out to make way for Ovechkin. The future Hall of Famer was resting on one knee, 
and seemed determined to welcome the surprise rookie to the NHL in a memorable way. And then Ovi stands up, kind of flicks the puck up into the middle of the into the middle of the of the zone and comes down on me. And I'm like, oh my God, my first shot's gonna be from Ovechkin. And he winds up, and I think he I, maybe as a rookie, he was trying to test me a little bit. And he winds up a full slap shot as hard as he can from maybe 15 feet away from me. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. The shot hit the post and bounced outside. Ovechkin came at him again. This time he scored. Then a third shot from the superstar Gibson had grown up watching on TV. He came down again and scored on me. And then I gloved him on the third one. So I guess, I guess I'm tied against him. Now on the ice at rookie camp, Gibson's trying to earn a permanent spot on the team. First day on the job. Technically. The warm-ups are over, and Gibson's in goal as Capitals players rush down the ice, passing the puck and taking shots on him. Oh, you're a headhunter. The last shot zings right by his head. Oh. During the downtime, Gibson keeps chatting. He talks about food. We fit, I, I want to hit, like, every place. P.F. Chang's, highly recommended. And yeah. stretching at center ice, he shares deep thoughts. You ever just think, like, what are we doing? We're entertainers. Us and Cirque du Soleil are like the same type of people. At the end of practice, Gibson talks to another player about the microphone he's been wearing all day. I don't think I gave them any content today. Once they get off the ice, Gibson and the other rookies board a bus to Annapolis, Maryland, where rookie camp continues at the Naval Academy. So just, just like normal? Yep. Hello? Hey, Gabe. Yeah, I can hear you. How you guys doing? A few weeks later, he and I talk again. Gibson survived that rookie camp and made the initial NHL squad training camp list, but ultimately he got cut. He'll start a season in the minors. That mental preparation he talks so much about, he's got to keep working on it. Yeah, being completely honest, I think I, uh, I think I got caught up in the, in the whole, you know, listen, I've been watching Alex Ovechkin and TJ Oshie since I was 10 years old, right? From watching these guys kind of come up in the league and, to finally have the chance to see their shots on a day-to-day basis. And, it you know, all got into Gibson's head a little too much and affected his performance in goal. With 10.34 to go in the second, Mitchell Gibson will take over in goal for Bjorklund. Gibson went down to the minor league camp and got into a game playing for the Hershey Bears. He grew up going to Bears games. Suddenly, there he was in goal for them. Trench pass and a break away. Kraska in on Gibson. Backhander and Gibson. What a start. A glut save off his right arm and into the catching mitt. Gibson says he's determined to help his team win, whether that team's the Hershey Bears or the Capitals' lower-tier minor league squad, the South Carolina Stingrays. Toward the end of the interview, I asked Gibson if he set a personal goal for himself for when he wants to make it to the NHL. Yeah, you know... I'll get kind of, I'll relate it back to the, to the first time we talked. I'll get a little Zen Buddhist on you guys. It's just about like right now, you know, and, and, um, and, and I can't, you can't look too far down the line. Like, I I think if you start thinking about timing to yourself, you're going to be disappointed because it's out of my hands. I have no control over me making the next team. I have control over myself, but like the people at the top are the ones who are, you know, deciding where I'm going. Wherever Mitchell Gibson lands, we'll try to check back in as the season continues. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
Ask voters in Ecuador their biggest concern as they head into presidential elections this weekend, and most will say crime. International drug traffickers working with local gangs have turned Ecuador into a major transportation hub for South American cocaine heading to Europe and the U.S. And Ecuadorians, increasingly caught in the cartel's crossfire, say they are desperate for solutions. NPR's Kerry Khan reports. Two candidates vie for Ecuador's top spot Sunday. Both say they have a plan to combat crime and the staggering homicide rate now double over recent years. Here's Luisa Gonzalez, a leftist lawmaker, single mother, and possibly Ecuador's first elected female president. Wearing a bulletproof vest and surrounded by guards with assault weapons, she rallies the crowd at her campaign closer in the Pacific port city of Guayaquil. Criticizing past governments, Gonzalez says they've plunged us into violence and poverty. The 45-year-old protege of former leftist president Rafael Correa says she'll invest in the country's security forces, buy better equipment, and purge the police of criminal elements. Her opponent, Daniel Noboa, heir to his father's banana conglomerate, says he'll strengthen the police too and fortify Ecuador's borders and ports. Noboa, just 35, also wears a bulletproof vest on the campaign trail and is surrounded by heavily armed guards. At this campaign rally in a tough neighborhood in Guayaquil, Noboa spent less than two minutes on stage, barely mentioning the daily violence many experience. Naboa made a surprisingly second-place finish in the first round of elections last August after the contest's most vocal anti-corruption candidate was assassinated. Several other officials have been killed since. And just last weekend, seven suspects in the candidate's murder were found dead in two different Ecuadorian prisons. Maritza Pintier came to a Noboa campaign stop, but the candidate never showed up. Supporters put a life-size cardboard cutout of him on stage as they raffled off appliances. We can't leave our houses, can't go anywhere. Dead bodies are on every corner, she says. She's not sure who she'll vote for. While polls show Noboa leading, nearly a fifth of voters say they are still undecided. Political analyst Ingrid Rios of Guayaquil University says the candidate's security plans are basic. There's no confidence left in the government, she says. It's shown it is incapable of doing anything. In fact, the current president facing impeachment proceedings took the rare step of dissolving Congress and resigning triggering the early elections. The winner on Sunday will have less than two years in office. Augusto Arriaga is 65 and is recently unemployed. He came to hear the leftist candidate, who he'll probably vote for, but he says he's not convinced. His nephew, a local security guard, was just killed last weekend by a robber. They always promise everything, but in the end, when it comes down to it, they forget it all, he says. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Guayaquil, Ecuador. This is NPR News. 
After seeing news alerts all day, sometimes it's hard to understand the full story. Get the WBUR mobile app. We'll be there with context and perspective live. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. And coming up at 6, it's the Moth Radio Hour. It runs until 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Clark, where chef demonstrations of Wolf appliances help you compare features and taste the results of ovens, cooktops, ranges, and more. ClarkLiving.com demo. And MIT Museum featuring freshly installed galleries and a lineup of dynamic programs and events that will feed your curiosity. Plan your visit today. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Hundreds of thousands of Gaza residents are struggling to flee from areas targeted by the Israeli military ahead of an expected land offensive, and U.S. citizens are among them. They were hoping to evacuate today. The State Department is trying to get them out. And the U.S. State Department says the number of Americans who died in the Hamas attack just over a week ago has risen to 29 and that 15 U.S. citizens remain unaccounted for. And Israel is vowing to find every Hamas militant who took part in last week's surprise attack on southern Israel that left more than 1,300 Israelis dead. Israel's strikes on Gaza have left at least 2,200 Palestinians dead. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. As we continue our coverage of the conflict in Israel and Gaza, we're going to take a step back and talk about how the cycles of violence have affected generations of families. It's a theme Arwa Damon writes about in the current edition of New Lines magazine. Damon was a longtime senior international correspondent for CNN and is now the founder and president of the nonprofit International Network for Aid, Relief and Assistance, which delivers medical and mental health care to children impacted by conflict or disasters. I spoke with Damon earlier and started by asking her if this past week feels different from previous eruptions of violence between Israel and Gaza. Anything that we thought we knew in the past has been thrown to such a new extreme that even the civilians in Gaza that are tragically so used to living through these cycles do not know how to cope with what it is that they are facing. On both sides of that border, you have a population that did not expect this and does not know how to handle it and does not know how to move forward. And if we're specifically going to be talking about the civilians in Gaza, never before during any of the clashes has there been a siege, a complete and total siege implemented by Israel like the one we're seeing taking place now. 
In this recent article, you kept returning to this theme of the cycles of violence becoming embedded in the DNA and what's happened in the past week being embedded in the DNA of generations to come. Describe what you mean by that. If we look at trauma and transgenerational trauma and the longer the core cause of that trauma goes unaddressed, the more embedded it becomes in the DNA and the psyche of generations to come. And what that means and what I fear that means is that it will become increasingly difficult to veer off of this path that we are on where everything is on repeat. You know, I speak to my friends that I have in Gaza and they feel as if their lives are this horrible movie that just gets rewound and started all over again. And when we're talking about the emotions that that generates, the the pure anger, the frustration, the lack of understanding of how it is that the other side can do this to you. If we don't start to address trauma and emotion as we try to look for political and military solutions, if we don't address the past, we are moving into very, very dangerous territory. What's a first achievable step toward doing that? And again, I realize I'm asking you this question after a week of incredible violence and with a lot of incredible violence almost certainly to come. You know, I'm not a psychological expert, but I would have to say that to begin to be able to heal from the trauma of generations past, some of these core traumas need to be more fully addressed. Israel needs to recognize that it came to be because it displaced over a million Palestinians. And the Palestinians' trauma that relates to that needs to be acknowledged. And that might begin to be a first step, but in this particular situation, just addressing that is not going to be sufficient because Palestinians still live as refugees, second, third generation Palestinians in countries like Lebanon, Jordan, Syria. They don't have the same rights as citizens of those nations. They are forever stuck in this refugee identity. And that needs to be addressed somehow as well. And when you talk about generational trauma and cycles of violence, you also at the same time saw this immediately come into play on the Israeli side as well. People in Israel, uh, Jewish people around the world responding to the killing of more than a thousand people, most of them civilians, by immediately connecting that to so many other times in history, most specifically the Holocaust, of feeling like like Jewish people were being targeted and sought out and killed. You could see that immediately come into the forefront of, of people's response to this. That's exactly what I'm talking about, about this trauma when it comes specifically to the Israeli side being embedded again in the psyche for generations to come, much like the Holocaust was embedded in the psyche, understandably so, for their grandparents. And this is where we find ourselves in very, very dangerous junctions because this also amplifies fear. And warring sides, all warring sides, whether they are governments, whether they are armed groups, will play upon, capitalize, and manipulate fear to sow further divisions so that they can then justify whatever act of violence or attack or strike it is that they are carrying out. I think you kind of saw that in the in the way a lot of this was framed. We have to respond. We must respond. There's no question that we will respond to what happened because of all of this. 
And look at the level of the response. Yeah. Look at the collective punishment that the people inside Gaza, who had nothing to do with this, who don't have the option to leave, are having to cope with right now. I've been regularly in touch with uh, a friend of mine who's there. He's a doctor. He's on the board of my charity. And he's there volunteering with MSF Doctors Without Borders. And he's been in Gaza numerous times whenever these sort of escalations do happen, this one being far from mm -hmm. an escalation. And he's unable to cope with what it is that he's saying. I mean, just he, he sent me a voice message that was describing the situation around him. When you drive by one of the targeted buildings, there's the stench of decaying bodies. They no longer are able to take the bodies out from underneath the rubble. And as you pass by the morgue, there are piles of bodies just wrapped in shrouds and uh, put against the corner because the, the morgue is overflowing. That was Dr. Hassan Abusit, uh, who you heard there. He's now warning that on top of everything else, there might be an impending public health catastrophe with the spread of all of the possible diseases because of all of the unburied bodies and the fact that no humanitarian aid has been getting in whatsoever because Israel is using the siege as its key bargaining chip because it wants its hostages freed. Mm -hmm. When you look at the scale of the response, the scale of the violence to come and layered on top of everything that's happened in the past, without asking you to be naive, what's your best hope for the weeks to come and minimizing all of the long-term generational damage that you're writing and thinking about? My best hope would be that somehow moral clarity ends up playing a part in all of this to some degree that Gaza is left standing I would have to say, you know, these are not my words. Various actors, various humanitarian organization leaders have been calling what we saw Hamas do against Israel and Israel's level of response and its siege of Gaza a violation of international law. But if we keep piling up these wrongs against one another, we're never going to even begin to give ourselves a chance to shift towards a path that is more right. Arwa Damon was a longtime senior international correspondent for CNN and is now founder and president of the nonprofit International Network for Aid, Relief, and Assistance. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Earlier today, the moon passed between the sun and the earth, creating what's called a ring of fire solar eclipse. A partial eclipse was visible in much of the U.S., except I will grouse right now to us here in Washington, D.C., where it was overcast and rainy. But prime viewing, what's called an annular eclipse, was reserved for people along a narrow path spanning eight states, from Oregon to Texas. Journalist and science writer David Barron is a veteran eclipse chaser and the author of a book called American Eclipse. He is usually based in Colorado. He traveled to northwest New Mexico today to view this eclipse, and he joins us now. Hey, David. Hello, Scott. So I have to make this paraphrase or I feel like I'll be fired from my job. You just stared into a burning ring of fire. How was it? <laughs> it was spectacular. Now, of course, I, I had eye protection. Yes. For an annular eclipse, you must use eye protection or you could ruin your vision. But it was just gorgeous. The, the period when the sun was just a perfect ring in the sky lasted about uh, four and a half minutes. And it really, through my eclipse glasses, looked like a wedding band just sitting up there 
in the heavens. It was it was just spectacular. Oh wow! Tell us where you were and what was the reaction of people around you. Well, I'm still here. I'm in uh, I'm near Farmington, New Mexico. I'm at a very remote overlook over some beautiful badlands. There are eroded cliffs, striped purple and gray and beige. And one of the wonderful things was to see the colors change as the moon moved in front of the sun and the and the landscape dimmed and dimmed and dimmed. The colors really got deeper, and it was like the the like the contrast of of the colors also was heightened. So that was something to watch. It got colder. I would say the temperature dropped a good 10 or 15 degrees wow. uh, when the uh, eclipse reached its peak. And I was just here. With, I didn't know if anyone would be here, but there are about 70 other folks here, uh, couples with young kids and dogs. And I met a couple of folks who came all the way from Michigan for this. Uh, so we were just this wonderful little community to watch this this rare event. You know, this one... You were relatively close to home, but you've traveled all over the world to view eclipses. What for you is the draw? A solar eclipse is just an opportunity to stop for a moment and appreciate being alive on this planet in this amazing solar system where there are all these giant forces at work that whether we're here or not, they they will continue on. They've been going on for eons. And it's just, to, it for me, it's a way to, to to get in touch in a very visceral sense with existence. It sounds crazy and corny, uh, but I find it's really good for my head. And there are a lot of eclipse chasers out there, um, a lot of folks who feel the way I do, that it, it's really sort of a reverential moment. So what's the next one? <laughs> where, where are you going next? Where, where, where should we look next? Well, let me say that an annular eclipse like the one today, it was beautiful. I was happy to drive a good eight hours from home to get here. But an annular eclipse is nothing compared with the truly awe-inspiring sight of a total solar eclipse. A total solar eclipse like the one that happened in 2017, for those who were in the path of totality, which went then from Oregon to South Carolina, they'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, so a total solar eclipse, I will travel to the other side of the world, and I do every other year. Uh, so the next total solar eclipse will cross the United States on April 8th from Texas to Maine. Everyone should be trying to figure out now where they will be on that day. It's a Monday, so be sure to take the day off. So next year, and, uh, it's coming right up, relatively absolutely. speaking. Absolutely. The next, the next solar eclipse will be a total solar eclipse, and it will be, the, it will be coming to the United States. And if you miss the total eclipse in 2024, next April— you're going to have to wait a good two more decades before another one comes to the United States. All right. Well, I will be sure to be in the right place with my proper viewing next April. Uh, for today, though, we missed out here in D.C., but David Barron, author of American Eclipse, got a beautiful view in New Mexico. Thanks for telling us about it, David. Thank you, Scott. Whether it's looking up at an eclipse with the proper eyewear, of course, or just peering into space under the stars at night, Contemplating the movements of celestial bodies and the vastness of the universe can leave you feeling overwhelmed sometimes. That's how I can feel, at least. A new book tries to help kids and families with that. It's called Glow, A Family Guide to the Night Sky. And it's filled with elaborate illustrations and a lot of information about the planets and stars and galaxies. It's all about inspiring children, their families, to be inspired to look up more often, to appreciate that we literally have a window to the cosmos 
and you only need to look up and enjoy the show. <laughs> That's the author, Noelia Gonzalez, a science writer at NASA and host of the Space Agency's Spanish-language podcast, Universo Curioso de la NASA. Gonzalez says GLOW is like a guidebook. You don't have to read each chapter in order. That way, readers can jump into exploring their favorite objects in space on the page and then among the stars. After reading the book, the best way to observe the night sky is to literally just go outside and look up. And the premise of the book was to feature celestial objects that you can see with, without the aid of a telescope or binoculars or anything, really. And if you're unable to see the night sky, the cover and pages of GLOW shine bright with their own stars. The elaborate illustrations created by artist Sarah Boccaccini-Meadows pop, bringing to life passages like the one Noelia Gonzalez reads for us. Why do we wish upon a shooting star? The ancient astronomer Ptolemy believed that meteors were a sign of the gods gazing at, hu at humans and listening to their wishes. Gonzalez doesn't just write about the planets and stars. She also includes passages about how different human cultures have interpreted them throughout history. There are many different versions of a myth or a legend around certain topic. And it was, you know, I always had to clarify, okay, this is just one story <laughs> uh, of all the many that we know of. Um, obviously, there are more that we probably don't know of because they were, you know, written down or something. Gonzalez wrote the book with her daughter in mind. So my daughter, Olivia, she is four and a half. She is completely convinced that this book is for her, that I literally wrote it for her only. Um, I obviously wrote it for her. I dedicated it for her. It's to Olivia, my brightest star. It's in the book. Obviously for every kid out there and even for my inner child. But I remember how proud I felt as a mother when I got the first copies in my doorstep and I opened the box with her next to me and just being able to share that with her. And then at night, literally reading my own book to her uh, as a bedtime story. And I will say Glow has now made the rounds at bedtime at my house too. So this is for Scott and his son. I've heard that this is his favorite part. A never ending hunt. Since ancient times, several stories have explained how Orion came to be. In Greek mythology, the constellation is associated Noelia Gonzalez is the author of Glow, a family guide to the night sky. And for